Section zero of English Costume. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. English Costume by Dion Clayton Calthrop. Section zero. Introduction. The world, if we choose to see it so, is a complicated picture of people dressing and undressing. The history of the world is composed of the chat of a little band of tailors, seated cross-legged on their boards. They gossip across the centuries, feeling, as they should, very busy and important. Someone made the coat of many colours for Joseph, another cut into material for Elijah's mantle. Baldwin, from his stall on the site of the great battle, has only to stretch his neck round to nod to the tailor who made the toga for Julius Caesar has only to lean forward to smile to Pasquino, the wittiest of tailors. John Pepys, the tailor, gossips with his neighbour who cut that jackanapes coat with silver buttons, so proudly worn by Samuel Pepys, his son. Mr. Schweitzer, who cut Beau Brummel's coat, talks to Mr. Meyer, who shaped his pantaloons. Our world is full of the sound of scissors, the clipping of which, with the gossiping tongues, drown the grander voices of history. As you will see, I have devoted myself entirely to civil costume, that is, the clothes a man or a woman would wear from choice, and not by reason of an appointment to some ecclesiastical post, or to a military calling, or to the bar, or at the bench. Such clothes are but symbols of their trades and professions, and have been dealt with by persons who specialize in those professions. I have taken the date of the conquest as my starting point, and from that date, a very simple period of clothes, I have followed the changes of the garments, reign by reign, fold by fold, button by button, until we arrive quite smoothly at Beau Brummel, the inventor of modern clothes, the prophet of cleanliness. I have taken considerable pains to trace the influence of one garment upon its successor, to reduce the wardrobe for each reign down to its simplest cuts and folds, so that the reader may follow quite easily the passage of the coat, from its birth to its ripe age, and by this means may not only know the clothes of one time, but the reasons for those garments. To the best of my knowledge such a thing has never been done before. Most works on dress try to include the world from Adam to Charles Dickens, lump a century into a page, and dismiss the ancient Egyptians in a couple of colour plates. So many young gentlemen have blown away their patrimony on feathers and tobacco, that it is necessary for us to confine ourselves to certain gentlemen and ladies of our own country. A knowledge of history is essential to the study of mankind, and a knowledge of history is never perfect without a knowledge of the clothes with which to dress it. A man, in a sense, belongs to his clothes. They are so much a part of him that, to take him seriously, one must know how he walked about, in what habit, with what air. I am compelled to speak strongly of my own work, because I believe in it, and I feel that the series of paintings in these volumes are really a valuable addition to English history. To be modest is often to be excessively vain, and, having made an exhaustive study of my subject from my own point of view, 
I do not feel called upon to hide my knowledge under a bushel. Of course, I do not suggest that the ordinary cultured man should acquire the same amount of knowledge as a painter, or a writer of historical subjects, or an actor, but he should understand the clothes of his own people, and be able to visualize any date in which he may be interested. One half of the people who talk glibly of Beau Brummel have but half an idea when he lived, and no idea that, for example, he wore whiskers. Hamlet they can conjure up, but would have some difficulty in recognizing Shakespeare, because most portraits of him are but head and shoulders. Napoleon has stamped himself on men's minds very largely through the medium of a certain form of hat, a lock of hair, and a grey coat. In future years an orchid will be remembered as an emblem. I have arranged, as far as it is possible, that each plate shall show the emblem or distinguishing mark of the reign it illustrates, so that the continuity of costume shall be remembered by the arresting notes. As the fig-leaf identifies Adam, so may the chaperon twisted into a coxcomb mark Richard the Second. As the curled and scented hair of Alcibiades occurs to our mind, so shall Beau Nash manage his clouded cane. Elizabeth shall be helped to the memory by her Piccadilly ruff, square Henry the Eighth by his broad-toed shoes and his little flat cap, Anne Boleyn by her black satin nightdress, James be called up as padded trucks, Maximilian as puffs and slashes, Dorsey by the curve of his hat, Tennyson as a dingy brigand, Gladstone as a collar, and even more recent examples as the Whistlerian lock and the Burns blue suit. And what romantic incidents may we not hang upon our clothesline? The cloak of Samuel Pepys, Dapper Dick, as he signed himself to a certain lady, sheltering four ladies from the rain, Sir Walter Raleigh spreading his cloak over the mud to protect the shoes of the great humorist Elizabeth. I never think of her apart from the saying, Ginger for pluck. Mary, Queen of Scots, ordering false attires of hair during her captivity. All these scenes clinched into reality by the knowledge of the dress proper to them. And what are we doing to help our modern history, the picture of our own times, that it may look beautiful in the ages to come? I cannot answer you that. Some chapters of this work have appeared in the Connoisseur, and I have to thank the editor for his courtesy in allowing me to reproduce them. I must also thank Mr. Pownall for his help in the early stages of my labours. One thing more I must add. I do not wish this book to go forth and be received with that frigid politeness which usually welcomes a history to the shelves of the bookcase, there to remain unread. The book is intended to be read, and is not wrapped up in grandiose phrases, and a great wind about nothing. I would wish to be thought more friendly than the antiquarian, and more truthful than the historian, and so have endeavoured to show, in addition to the body of the clothes, some little of their soul. Dion Clayton Calthrop End of section zero. Read by Kara Schallenberg. www.kray.org 
in July 2010 in San Diego, California.